0: Let us pray. Lord, we ask that in the hearing of Your Word, we may see You as You are. Amen. Was Jesus a good-looking guy, do you think? Was He handsome? It might seem like a trite question, but uh, fathers of the early church, first 300 years of the church's life, spilled an awful lot of ink trying to figure out was he beautiful or nah? So, Jesus, good looking or nah? Uh, it it seems silly, but uh, it was a very serious question. As the early church tried to work out like who Jesus Is who who He was, um, these questions became central as they thought about the fact of His deity. If Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, made flesh, become human, then the fullness of His deity must have had something about it that was attractive, that that drew people to Him. And indeed, the early fathers said... uh, Notice how everywhere he goes, people are just drawn to him. He had a charisma to him. Toward this end, they quoted uh, verses out of the Old Testament uh, as evidence, like uh, Psalm 42 You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, and therefore God has blessed you forever. He's good looking. On the other hand, uh, others of the church fathers said, well, that's not the only Old Testament text that speaks about the appearance of the Messiah. Isaiah said, he had no form or majesty that should make us look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The thinking was that Christ really did descend to the depths of the human experience. And not only that, but as as if we say in the creed, He descended all the way down to the region of hell. Then that must mean if He was really with us in our sin and brokenness, and He never looked away from what was painful or poor or ugly, and the poor always recognized in him one like them, one like them. Then, nah, he wasn't good looking. He he was disfigured, and plain looking. So, which is it? Good looking or nah? Well, there's something uh, about this question that is central to the text that we have this morning out of Matthew chapter 17 and this feast day that we call the transfiguration. Transfiguration is a funny word, but it means literally to change in appearance. Transfiguration, most of us think of as more like uh, that class at Hogwarts that Harry Potter had to take. Or maybe we think of uh, this kind of change of appearance as something like out of a fairy tale. Indeed, fairy tales are filled with princes who have been turned to frogs, right? Or paupers who are really kings in disguise. The moral of those stories is usually something like, don't judge by appearances. Things aren't what they seem. Beauty is often hidden in what is grotesque. And that to see it, we need to learn a deeper way of seeing that goes beyond mere appearances. While the Bible is no fairy tale, the transfiguration of Christ is a story about Jesus changing His appearance, of being temporarily revealed as who He truly is. And it's also about how hard it is for us to learn to see that. It begins when Jesus takes three of His closest disciples up the mountain. Matthew says He was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became dazzling white. In Matthew's way of talking, uh, indeed in the ancient Hebrew way of talking, to, to say that something was radiant is to say that it is Beautiful. To say that something dazzles is to say that it has a beauty beyond anything else. The ancient biblical way also harkens back to the story of Moses, whom the disciples will soon meet along with Elijah. For it was Moses whose face shone like the sun in being near to the presence of God in prayer. And by mentioning Elijah and Moses, Matthew hearkens to the whole of the biblical narrative, the story of Israel, that Jesus has come to fulfill and enact. So his face is transfigured before them, and what happens next, I think, is best captured by those ancient Eastern icons, where uh, men who are dressed in clothes, a lot like what I'm wearing now, are literally bowled over. They're falling off the mountain. Have you ever seen these wonderful icons? Peter, James, and John thrown topsy-turvy. Not knowing what to say. Peter kind of blithering something. and yeah. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt to come into that kind of beauty. Well, it's what the philosophers call an encounter with the sublime. A beauty that not only draws us with prettiness, but a beauty that wounds. A beauty that... Pierces Even as it draws us, the disciples are struck speechless because it overwhelms them like the cloud that descends upon the mountain. Now, if this story in chapter 17 were just one more episode like the rest of Matthew's gospel, well, we would have to put our thumb on the scale of answering that Jesus was beautiful and beautiful alone. But actually, this story is an anomaly in the story that Matthew tells. It's it's very different from the rest of his Gospel. As a matter of fact, Matthew 17 is almost opposite of everything else that's happening throughout this section of the Gospel. This is what makes it such a difficult story and one that's so oddly interesting. In the chapter just before this, and really throughout this whole section, Jesus has begun to encounter a tremendous amount of resistance, especially from His enemies in the religious establishment. And the more they challenge Him, the more He refuses to tell them or show them who He truly is. So much so that in Matthew 16, they say, Give us a sign that you are from heaven. Give us a sign. Show us. And then we'll believe. The more they ask for a revealing, the more Jesus veils his identity from them. And then his disciples, it's almost like they can't take it anymore. And they say, Well, Lord, we'd kind of like to know too. And Jesus says, You want to know my identity? My destiny is disfigurement. My destiny is to be handed over to the religious leaders and to suffer and die at the hands of the authorities. And then, Matthew 17. We're told that six days after saying that, he leads Peter and James and John to the Mount of Transfiguration. Six days after predicting his disfiguration, he shows them his transfiguration. Part of what makes the story interesting is the way that it, it, uh, Matthew 17 is, is giving us a little glimpse, it's a little foretaste of what's going to happen at the very end of the story. It's like uh, when you're reading a, a, a detective novel and you can't, You can't stand it anymore, and so you flip to the next to the last page to see who (laughs) done it. Or again, it's sort of like the old fairy tales that clue the reader in to the hidden identity of the prince who's dressed like a pauper so that they will be even more enraged at the ignominy that he has to endure. J.R.R. Tolkien himself, a lover of fairy tales, did something like this in the way he described that mysterious wanderer, the ranger from the north, about whom was written a riddle. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. And the point of the riddle is to show those who have eyes to see that this Ruffian is actually the high king Aragorn wandering in disguise. And in Matthew 17, it says, though Christ was showing them that his identity as a pauper is actually a disguise because he has freely chosen to be seen as such. And that in fact, he's not a pauper, but he is a prince on a mission. And He begins to train them to see beyond mere appearances to the depths of who He truly is. And if we learn to see Christ's beauty in His ugliness, it will begin to change not just how we see Him, but how we see ourselves and other people too. And friends, let's face it, this is training we desperately need we live in a culture that probably more than any other ever disciplines us to see only appearances, right? You want to have power? Dress the part. Do you want to be desirable? Mmm, you better be beautiful. If you're lured into worshiping the idol of appearances, it will consume you. And I mean that literally. It will consume you. Listen to the interviews with uh, the mavens of fashion houses in Europe and New York talking about how they literally can't put some of their models on stage because they have such poor health because they are racked with anxiety over their appearance to the point of starving themselves. Or Google celebrity Photoshop fails. You'll see the way that our culture takes even its most beautiful and makes them less human in order to sell images of them. Beauty that has no place for ugliness always consumes those who worship it. And spiritually, the same thing is true. Images of the Christian life that idealize victory and success and spiritual achievement, they always obscure the human stuff. The dark night of the soul the feeling of being abandoned by God, the stuff nobody tells you about in Sunday school or youth camp. But historically, the church has said this is a part of normal, maturing Christian faith. The ugliness. The dark side. Get used to it. It's part of life, folks. Paul understood that tension when he wrote in the epistle lesson this morning, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, right? We should all want that stuff. But He knows, how do you get it? By sharing in His sufferings and by becoming like Him in His death. For without the ugliness of suffering, the resurrection will have no power in our lives. But on the other hand, for those who have no power, for the disempowered who desperately need resurrection, it's the disfigured Jesus that has always given them hope. To the poor in spirit, to the meek, to those who mourn, for the sat upon, the spat upon, and the ratted on, Jesus comes as one whose beauty was not such that we would desire Him. For those who are trapped for those who are alone and afraid, for the little girl locked in a shed calling out for a dear, kind God to rescue her, guess what? It's ugly Jesus who comes. To the disfigured and afraid, it's the disfigured Jesus who shows His face. And to you, when you're three weeks into Lent, And you realize that maybe the alcohol has a place in your life that you haven't fully appreciated. Or to you, three years out from your divorce, wondering if you'll ever be known or loved again. Guess who shows? It's ugly, Jesus. He's like you. He knows you. He loves you. And when you see Him, you see Him marred and disfigured as He was on the cross. The poor have always welcomed Him. The disfigured have always welcomed Him because ugly Jesus doesn't demand that they join the revolution or educate themselves in order to be loved. They know that Jesus loves them for them. Or should I say He loves us just as we are? Because let's face it, all of us at one time or another in our lives All of us are face down on a tile floor crying out to be saved. And until you reach Jesus there, until you receive Him in the darkest place of your life, you're not really receiving Him as He truly is. But for those of us who have been met by ugly Jesus in the dark places, it can in turn be a challenge to behold Him as the One whose beauty surpasses everything in creation. Sometimes we come to think of Jesus as nothing more than the candle that brightens the dark corner of my life, while forgetting that He possesses a beauty beyond the noonday light. I once had uh, the privilege of pastoring this guy named Dave who was like one of the leaders in the church. He, he was on my board and was at everything that we did, really seemed to be soaking up the, the, the community and the teaching of the church. And then he just kind of drifted. And I, I sort of lovingly nudged him a couple of times. Hey man, missing you around. And after a while, he said, look, don't, don't take this the wrong way. Um... It's just that when I was going through my divorce, it all just meant so much. Like the community of the church was so welcoming and I needed that. And the the teaching was so powerful because I was just so lost and afraid. But, you know, Sherry's moving in now and I just I just don't find that it means as much anymore. I thanked him for his honesty and promised to take him off the, the potluck rotation list and off the prayer list, prayer chain emails. And then it wasn't long before I, the, the wheels started turning and I started getting up on my pastoral resentment soapbox. I thought, how dare he, after all this church has done for him? He's, he's just in it for himself. He's just in it to make his own little personal life a little more meaningful. I can't believe this. And then those intrusive Holy Spirit thoughts started coming in. Saying things like, well, Joe, isn't that what you do? Are you studying my word because you want to see me for who I truly am? or because you want to bolster your own intellectual commitments? Do you pray merely to get what you need? Or do you pray because you simply enjoy my company? We all come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. We all enter into His presence on one side of the beauty-ugly dichotomy. And that's not just when we meet Him for the first time, but again and again and again. Most of us want to focus on one half of the picture. And I think that's maybe the reason why the Festival of the Transfiguration is one of the only Things that we get two times in the church year because Lord knows we need it. We frequently, frequently, every one of us, need to hear Jesus saying to us, Come up the mountain, come up. There's this old Mahalia Jackson song. I'm going to move on up a little bit higher. Move on up higher. I've got something to show you. Move on up. I'm a prince. I'm not a pauper. I'm the king. I'm not a wandering stranger. Move on up. I'm not just the God who is there for you. I am the God who is there. Do you love Christ merely for who He is for you? Or do you love Him for who He is? Now don't worry, it happens. It it, it happens to every single one of us. But He's calling you. Come on up. He's calling all of us who are getting a little too used to having Him around. He's calling to all of us who are getting a little too used to having Him in our pocket and on our payroll. He's calling us to come on up. As Paul said this morning, He's calling us to the high calling. Move on up all of us who would bring Jesus down to where we are. Friends, the good news is that He loves you enough to bring you up to where He is. Come, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate deity. Come this morning and see in these figures of bread and wine the body and blood that He gives to transfigure you. And now to Him who became ugly like us so that we could become beautiful like Him, be honor and glory and praise forever and ever and ever. Amen.